how do I convey to people how magical and wonderful and amazing they are and how magical and wonderful and amazing this planet is and how I mean, like one of the things I often do is like when I'm talking to people and, and, and you know, they're, they're talking to me about dieting, they're talking about all the, all the small things that are making them miserable, but that they think they have to do. And I'm like, how about this? I'm going to give you some context, right? We're in the middle of a, of a galaxy. It's in the middle of some other thing. It's probably in the middle of something else. So we're like a magical rock covered in like giraffes and cheese and flowers and oceans and like tiny, tiny dogs, right? And we're like living on this magical rock that's flying around in a heretofore unknown space that we sort of vaguely understand, but not really. And you're like on that thing. You're on that magical rock covered in all those things in the middle of this magical place, right? And you are going to choose to not wear tiny shorts today. You are gonna choose not to eat tiramisu today. And I, I just sort of like, in my head, I'm like, I feel like all my energy in life is, is spent thinking about that question. <laughs> that was Virgie Tovar, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 83. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. As you might have noticed, this show isn't released every week like most other podcasts. Instead, full eight-episode seasons go live on the first of the month every other month, and in each season, you'll get to meet a wide range of interesting and refreshingly imperfect people who join me for one reason only, to share the truth of what's really going on in their lives and to talk about things that we think don't get talked about openly and honestly enough. That means deep conversations about work-life balance, body image, shame, fear, relationships of all types, sex, social media, religion, mental health, racism, parenting, self-improvement, goal setting, and more. And of course, since this is an adult podcast that covers adult topics, you can expect to hear adult language from time to time. So consider this your little warning on that. Let's see, what else do I want to tell you about this show? Basically, I just want you to know that no one's trying to sell you anything. No one's forcing their agenda down your throat. No one is trying to get you to fix yourself. No one's preaching a so-called perfect six-step life hack plan for anything, which thank goodness, right? Because I'm so over that type of stuff. Instead, my hope is that each episode of this show makes you laugh, think, and just feel less alone. Because honestly, that's all that I ever want to know that I'm not alone, which is why this podcast is more than a podcast. It's a community. And you won't hear any ads or any sponsors or any other kind of outside influence. The show is actually 100% listener funded, and each new episode is made possible by people just like you who have pledged $8 per eight episode season. To do this, we use a platform called Patreon. And not only does your support cover the costs of producing the show and ensure that it can keep going throughout the year, but it also earns you access to over 30 hours of exclusive bonus content and a super fun community. You'll get extra episodes with favorite past guests, people like Kate Grace, Kathleen Shannon, Alexandra Franzen, and Carrot Quinn, just to name a few, with new bonus episodes added every month. You'll also get end-of-month reflection episodes directly from me, where I go into detail about my successes, failures, goals, and lessons learned each and every month. You'll get my popular weekly email series, Notes of Grit and Grace, in your inbox each Friday if you want that. You'll be able to join our fun, casual monthly book club if that's your thing. And you'll just have lots of cool opportunities to help shape the future of the show. So for all of that, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per season. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. 
Your support is what will enable the show to continue. And if you're in the position to be able to help fund the show, I can't tell you how much that would mean to me. Plus, it's going to be so much fun for us to be able to get to know each other behind the scenes in our community. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Virgie Tovar. Virgie is an author, activist, and one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on fat discrimination and body image. She's the founder of Babe Camp, a four-week online course designed to help those who are ready to break up with diet culture, and she started the hashtag campaign, Lose Hate, Not Wait. Virgie edited the groundbreaking anthology, Hot and Heavy, Fierce Fat Girls on Life, Love, and Fashion, and she holds a master's degree in human sexuality with a focus on the intersections of body size, race, and gender. She's been featured by the New York Times, Tech Insider, MTV, NPR, I could go on and on, and you can find her and her work online at virgitovar.com. In this episode, she gives us an amazing crash course in the history of diet culture and goes into detail about how it's ruining our lives. She shares lots of personal stories about her own experiences. We talk about her decision to break up with diet culture, what self-love looks like for her, and why it's so important to practice setting boundaries and saying no. I am totally obsessed with Virgie's work, which I think I told her like three times during this conversation. And finally talking to her was such a blast. I hope that you get as much from this conversation as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Virgie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell me the most fun thing that you have done so far in 2017. Whoa, okay, that's such a big question. Um, I, oh, the thing that's coming to mind is I just literally went on tour uh, for two weeks with um, seven other writers, six of whom were women. And we went um, from Humboldt County up to... Portland, Seattle. Um, I actually wasn't on a couple of those because I had to go do a talk in Indiana at Purdue, but the last two weeks have been a whirlwind. But anyway, so the the Pacific Northwest, and then we came back down to the Bay Area, did a show in San Francisco, then went down to Southern California and landed in Palm Springs. Um, I just drove back from Palm Springs yesterday. We did this amazing, like Mad Max, like dystopian feminist retaliation inspired (laughs) um, photo shoot, which was my idea. I'm like a big photo shoot person. Um, So we went kind of out into the desert a little bit and took these like really creepy photographs and um, they're really good. They're on my Instagram. If anybody is into like Mad Max inspired, um, you know, scary looking power babes in the desert, um, so I think that that's been the the funnest thing I've done in 2017. <laughs> yeah, those photos are awesome. Sidebar, you're such a fun person to follow on Instagram. Like just your Instagram. So <laughs> I don't know, it like always makes me smile. I, I have extreme jealousy of your really fun style. And I, a question that came to mind for me was, do you have a current favorite outfit? And if so, describe it for us. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, it's funny. I don't know if this is, this is, okay. So here's something you need to know about me. I am extremely curatorial, like pathologically curatorial. (laughs) So um, I'm the kind of person who has like, you know, I have kind of a, a bunch of outfits on deck that are kind of waiting to be unveiled. So the outfit that I'm thinking of, 
Um, I'm thinking of two. I think there's two outfits in the running. One of them I haven't worn yet, though. And the thing is, right, like you never know until you debut the outfit if you're really going to love it. But the fantasy of the outfit is really good. So let me tell you about this. So um, it's essentially a sort of light blue, like mint colored slinky dress covered in enormous unicorns. Um, so That's that amazing. one's waiting to get debuted <laughs> for the summer, I think. That one's just it just it just kind of says I have this little um hat rack right next to my bed and I kind of have my little my favorite sacred pieces on it and I just kind of look at them all the time. They fill me with joy. Um I will say another outfit I've really been enjoying is one that I wore um for this like Palm Springs desert dystopia photo shoot. It's just um it's a lace dress that I thrifted. So it's a, it, it had been sort of a lace shell with kind of like a, um, I don't know, almost like a spandexy, um, definitely a synthetic fabric on the interior. And I just cut out the entire interior piece. So it's literally just like a, a kind of a lace sheath dress and then I wear a black bikini underneath so it's like a black uh, lace sheath dress black black bikini underneath and then I put on this enormous gold necklace on top of it and it was it was it, it was so fun wearing it um out in Palm Springs I had to literally yell at people not to take photographs of me which is like the queeniest thing ever I'm just I, I live for the, these kinds of ridiculous absurd poodle moments where I'm just like do not photograph me while I walk into Starbucks you know and, and it's just it's just so absurd and I just love that um so so those are those are my two faves right now that's uh that's so fun I it's you know, it's funny when you're inherently not something and yet you think it's sort of a thing that you want to be. I like I'm just not that into fashion. Like I, I don't know. I just I tried forever. I think it's because I was basically my mother's doll when I was little, like just the dressing up and the hours spent like parting the hair and doing the things. I think as I grew up, I was just like, fuck it. I don't care. Like I'm just going to not whatever. And now that I work from home, it's like I have to get real person dressed like maybe twice a week. And I'm like, anyway, so right. I see people like you who are just like rocking amazing style and I'm like you know in my other parallel life there's another Nicole who's like really into this <laughs> yes totally yes uh, what's something that you can't stop thinking about lately what's on your mind oh man I mean I spend almost all of my time um theorizing about all of the bizarre things that we think are normal in our culture <laughs> That's pretty much like 90% of my brain energy. Um, and things like, you know, I don't know. I mean, to, to be most specific, this is really related to the work that I do. But like how much time people dedicate to how and what they eat, um, especially when it's around like maintaining a certain kind of a body, um, like the clothes that people will or will not allow themselves to wear. Things like, you know... Um, I don't know. I think about a lot of things around gender. Like why, um, like why do we live in a world where men get to treat women so poorly and we just think it's normal and we call it like men are from Mars when it's actually just oppression and like violence, right? <laughs> I'm like, men aren't from Mars. Men need to be accountable. You know? <laughs> oh my God. Like, <laughs> and so my, well, it's like, you know, it's just, it's just kind of funny how in my head I'm like, oh my God, I just look around me and I see all the magical, beautiful human beings around me. And, um, 
And a lot of them are women. A lot of them are people who came from like traumatic past. A lot of us are fat. A lot of us are, you know, like people of color, any number of, of sort of marginalized positions. And, you know, we're doing so much work. Um, we're doing so much work just to kind of be able to live our lives. And, and it's so, it's so frustrating to me to kind of recognize that I'm like, you know, people deserve better than this. People deserve better than what the culture is offering most of us. And I'm really, I'm really, I feel like I'm often thinking about like, how do I convey to people how magical and wonderful and amazing they are and how magical and wonderful and amazing this planet is and how, I mean, like one of the things I often do is like when I'm talking to people and, and, and you know, they're, they're talking to me about dieting, they're talking about all the, all the small things that are making them miserable, but that they think they have to do. And I'm like, how about this? I'm going to give you some context, right? We're in the middle of a, of a galaxy that's in the middle of some other thing that's probably in the middle of something else. So we're like a magical rock covered in like giraffes and cheese and flowers and oceans and like tiny, tiny dogs, right? And we're like living on this magical rock that's flying around in a heretofore unknown space that we sort of vaguely understand, but not really. And you're like on that thing. You're on that magical rock covered in all those things in the middle of this magical place, right? And you are going to choose to not wear tiny shorts today. You were going to choose not to eat tiramisu today. And I, I just sort of like, in my head, I'm like, I feel like all my energy in life is is spent thinking about that question. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so listen, it's been what, six minutes? I'm obsessed with you. This is already, I want to talk to you about everything, which I knew was the case because I've been a fan of your, of your work for a while. Um, and I mean, obviously we're going to talk about your work, but before we do that, I would love to hear how you would describe your childhood. Tell me about baby Virgie. Oh my God. So my, okay. So it's complicated, right? My, my childhood was super fucked up, right? It's like, it, I mean, my childhood is for like, as with many of us, it was like the defining sort of time of my life, you know? Um, and my childhood was a mixed bag. Like I grew up, this is a long, this is a long answer. Are you ready? I am so ready. I have my tea. Okay. I'm sitting down. I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I grew up straddling kind of multiple worlds. And, and I think um, for the most part, I grew up sort of straddling two worlds. Like, um, so I was raised by my grandparents, my mother's family, um, and half the time, maybe a little bit more, and some of the time with my mother. Um, now, here's some, there's like, there's, there's almost like this almost mythological element to this story, right? Because so my mother um, had me when she was 20 years old and my grandmother really wanted another baby. So she had a phantom pregnancy while my mother was pregnant with me um, and like started to lactate and, and all these kinds of like really complicated things. Right. My mother has a lot of, and I now realize in retrospect, a lot of um, undiagnosed mental illness that I think is actually chemical. I think some of it is kind of emotional and, and, and sort of environmental, but I think a lot of it is actually chemical. So she has not been formally diagnosed to this day. As far as I know, she's very resistant to treatment for a lot of reasons, but from what I can tell, she's sort of a manic, she's got like bipolar, right? Um, so unmedicated bipolar is my mom. 
my grandmother had a really complicated sort of traumatizing childhood too. So she has a lot of really like very intense emotional problems. Um, and she's extremely codependent, like very, very, very codependent, like very sort of, um, like her life is entirely, um, uh, like I think it's characterized by her narr her narrative of her own suffering. Um, so that's kind of those, these are the two major figures in my life growing up. Right. So, mm -hmm. so my grandmother kind of like claims me, um, my mother kind of goes away and starts to uh, like abandon me for long stretches of time, um, at random. And so it's a very tumultuous, very complicated, um, um, childhood in that way. And then to the, the, the kind of like, the thing, the other sort of, I don't know if it's the cherry on top or, or what you'd call it, but the other, the backdrop I think that's important to, to know about my childhood is that um, I grew up with my, uh, my grandfather was the bread, was the breadwinner and the provider. Um, he was not an alcoholic, but his father was a very violent alcoholic. And so in, in kind of like the addiction model, um, my family would be like the dry drunks, right? Where like they use emotions and um, other kinds of non, like non-substance um, experiences in an addictive way. So I grew up in a very, um, like in an alcoholic framework um, household. And for those of you who have not heard of that, or you, for people who don't know what that is, um, there's kind of roles that everyone has. Like there's like the, there's the sort of the perpetrator, the alcoholic, there's the enabler, often like the wife or the partner. Um, and then the children take on particular roles. And like my role was the golden child. I was the one who saved the day all the time, right? I was with my joy and my theatricality and my eccentricities. I made everybody forget how awful life really was in our household. And that was my job. You know, that was my job in the, in the family. And so it, it's interesting, right? Because I see those personality traits in me to this day. And it's really, it'll always haunt me. I'll never know if that's like the authentic quote unquote me or not, you know? Um, but this is, this is who I am, you know? And so, and it's like, I talk about this with my therapist all the time. She's like, what, like, you know, what if this, what if this is the you that you became? Like we all become different people depending on what we had to be growing up, what we have to be in this life, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, um, I was always absurd. I was always like, um, a diva. I was always kind of like a queen, right? And they called me that like little queen in Spanish was my, uh, like my pet name growing up. Like I just grew up being called that. And so I had all of my, you know, everything I wanted, I was given, right? Like, I mean, in terms of toys, and I think what's complicated is that I had all of this material security and all of this material wealth, but there was no emotional um, depth to any of it, right? Like, my family didn't know how to take care of me emotionally, right? Um, and so... Um, it was kind of this like really, again, I think the, the straddling is a theme that I think you'll, you'll probably hear come up more than once, but I just feel like straddling, um, is really the characteristic that, that defines my life in a lot of ways. So, um, so baby Virgie was <clears throat> 
often wearing like ridiculous, amazing outfits. And my mom put me in like, like, you know, she would also, she really liked to make clothes. And so she would make herself an outfit and then me the same outfit, but babified, babyfied. Um, Like there's this one picture of us where she made us um, this cheetah print jumpsuit and she had one in her size and I had a little one for me. (laughs) And so... There was a lot of really kooky, amazing, strange, over-the-top fashion. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, like, I mean, I remember those days before I kind of learned how to be a part of this culture. Um, there was a lot of freedom I had with my body. I was always a fat kid. I was a fat baby. And I grew up in a fat family. And um, and I didn't have any sense of self-consciousness because I had to be taught that. We're taught to be self-conscious. We're taught to think our bodies are wrong. And so I remember the years before I was taught that, like how free I was and like all the, you know, all the naked time I spent and all the time I spent in the bathtub and, and, um, and out in like the pool and, and all these kinds of things. So there's a, there's a lot of, um, I mean, I think that kind of defines it. It's complex, right? Like on the one hand, really special and wonderful and free. And on the other hand, deeply fraught, a lot of, um, a lot of sense of a pressure to perform in order to keep the family afloat. And, and, and that's kind of my childhood. Yeah. So you mentioned something that I think is, is really insightful, this idea that we're not born, you know, feeling body shame, right. Or anything like that, that it's like, these are learned thoughts, like learned behaviors. Is there a memory that you have of kind of where that left turn happened, where like your first memory of being taught that? Yeah, it's it's interesting, right? Because I remember, I, I don't know if it was the first time I was called fat, but I remember one of the first times that I started to realize that something that people had a problem with my body. Um, and it was actually in preschool, um, another, a boy, right. And I think it's, I think it's it's really important for me to point out the gendered nature of my education in body shame. And it was boys. Um, like absolutely there were girls who were mean to me, but like it was, it was boys who were doing this. So, um, Anywho, I was, uh, I was, you know, four years old and this, this kid in my class who I think at the time I sensed that he was in kind of a rough family. I don't know why, I don't know why, but I remember I've always been super sensitive to other people's energy. And I think some of that is like having to grow up in a household with multiple volatile personalities around me. But, um, I sensed even then that there was something wrong with his family, um, and I think in retrospect, I realized, you know, he probably had a, a, a complicated, more complicated than my own family life. And um, so we're both four years old. And I think his name was like Joshua or something like that. And he, you know, we were kind of crawling around um, in the play yard and um, he had been trying to like look up my skirt. He he was like an upskirt kind of a kid or whatever. And so, um, and then kind of we come out of this little tube that we've been crawling in, and he says that I'm fat, right? And he says it, and it, I remember pausing for a moment, like I was confused because I didn't I didn't have any context for that word. Um, I think I vaguely knew what it was, but I could tell from the way that he said it that it was meant to hurt me. And so it was very jarring, right? And this, I feel like in a, a lot of ways, this is, because, right, like the process of 
learning shame is not instantaneous. There's, there's kind of a, there's kind of a, like a, I I think of it as a three-step process. Um, I can get into that later, but it kind of starts with like, you're introduced to to an idea. Um, you begin to understand that, that you have, that there's, that other people have this idea and that you need to kind of, um, do stuff in order to avoid punishment. And then the third step, which is when you believe the idea yourself, um, and so I was kind of in that second step, right? Like in this story, um, I'd probably heard the word fat before, but didn't really think about it. Um, and then the second part where I'm just like, I'm starting to realize that this is something that other people have a problem with. And I don't remember um, the exact moment when the when it went from something like that moment in the play yard to a deep sense of internalization and shame. Um, but I know that it happened when I was five. I, kn- I know that it happened in kindergarten um, when I was introduced to primary school. Um, and the and once primary school hit, it was pretty incessant, right? Like, I mean, I was, I was getting sort of pummeled, like emotionally pummeled, again, primarily by boys who were trying to teach me that I was fat and that fat was bad and that I should do anything in my power not to be fat. Um, so that's as far as my recollection goes. So fast forward to today, when someone asks you about your work, when they say, so what do you do? How do you describe it? Oh man, it depends on the person, right? <laughs> yeah, like, I'm sure. Sure. <laughs> it's funny because if I, like, um, I just got out of a relationship, um, with, um, with an attorney and whenever we'd be at his, at his work functions, um, I would just sort of, it, it, like, again, it's funny cause it, it would depend, right? Like it depends on, um, like if I really, if I, if I sense, like if a man, if a man in like a suit who I think of as like a basic normal, like dude, bro asks me what I do, I just say the most terrifying thing I can come up with. I'm like, I do feminism hard or whatever. Like it's just like, and, or something that, you know, just something that's like going to befuddle him and make him walk away because I do not want to talk to this person. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a little bit like, I'm again, I'm very curatorial about who's around me. So I'm like, check it out. If I read you as somebody who is probably a fat phobic sexist, I'm definitely going to try and get out of this conversation as quickly as possible. So in that situation, you get like the terrifying answer. Um, In situations like dinner parties where I don't want to become the focus of the conversation for the next hour and a half, I'll just say something like, um, like I work uh, with women around empowerment or something. Little bit, it's a little bit provocative, but um, usually I can end that conversation maybe two or three sentences. If it's somebody who I'm like, okay, I think this person gets it, or and or is curious, and I'm not going to become, I'm not going to end up doing a bunch of labor for this person for literally the for for no for no reason besides they have nothing else to say to me or their own personal sense of entertainment. Um, <clears throat> I kind of get into it and I talk about being a fat activist and I talk about being a writer and a lecturer. Um, I think that my career um, is, and my job right now is like so multiplicitous. Um, and I think it really reflects the the breadth of what, what I'm most interested in and what I'm most fascinated by. Like I love writing. Um, I love talking. I love speaking. Um, so I do a lot of lecture engagements um, and I love Actually, I love actually working with, I mean, I work primarily with women, but um, I love working with women and helping them understand how valuable they are and how much more they deserve than what they've been taught. And so that's where the sort of educational component um, comes in, excuse me, where I 
work with women online with coursework. And sometimes we do retreats. Um, like I just did a retreat in November in Jamaica with a group of women. So it kind of depends on who you are um, and how you, how I perceive you. And that, that depend, that, that's how I describe my work. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that's fair. It's, it's always a, a fun question for me to ask people because of that. Like there's usually, well, it depends who I'm talking to, or especially if you do something that's not a traditional, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a teacher, right? Where people understand it maybe in one word that there is some, you know, how much energy do I want to put into describing this to this person? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so I would love to hear the story behind your creation of the lose hate, not wait movement hashtag, however you describe it. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how to summarize my work. I think that I just kind of wanted to be able to sort of quickly and succinctly say what what it is that I believe in, like my vision or my mission statement. Um, and <clears throat> I was kind of letting it percolate in my brain. And then one day I just like shot up out of bed, like cinematic moment. I just like sat up right out of bed and my brain had been working all night. And I woke up and said, lose hate, not wait. Like I like literally uttered it out loud. And I started to write, write it out. And I started to sort of make some images around it. And, um, that's kind of the story of like where it came from. If I felt like it was kind of a magical, amazing, um, that it rhymes is so serendipitous and wonderful, but it entirely encapsulates what I'm about. You know, essentially the idea that we lose, I mean, this culture, we're taught to lose weight in order to lose hate, right? Like in order to like, in order to stop feeling like we're not good enough, we take a lot of measures. And one of them, a big one is weight loss. Um, and what I've come to realize again and again and again in my own life, as well, in the, as well as in the lives of those around me and those I work with, um, is that there's no amount of weight you can lose if you believe that you're not good enough and you have no love for yourself, like true love. Um, there is no amount of weight loss that will lead to lead to that feeling because, um, the truth is right. Like we need to heal that feeling inside of us and, and restricting and, um, because like, right. Like dieting at the end of the day, um, I would argue is an act of self-hatred. It's an act of, um, it's an act of oppression, right? Like it, it's a manifestation of distress. Um, like when a person is denying what they want and sort of gaslighting themselves, like, choosing not to believe what their, what their body needs and, and sort of allowing an outside party, the culture, um, to determine what your life and what your body and what's on your plate, what it should look like. Um, that in my mind is, is an incredible act of, of self-hatred, right? Because like, you know, if you love yourself, you know that you're the expert, you're the number one expert of your life. You're the number one expert of your body. There's nothing wrong with you, right? Like no matter what physically might be going on, right? Like whether you, I mean, at the end of the day, right? Um, I truly believe that no matter what things are, are weird or strange or even like problems, like physical, like illnesses, right? Like that these things are, are part of us, right? And like that we don't have to take on the blame of those things. Like there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with your body. Um, and so in general, right? Like a behavior like dieting and weight loss is a behavior based in hatred and hatred will never be the, the path to love. 
it's pretty obvious, pretty intuitive. Um, but we're kind of sold a bill of goods on that. We're taught that like, if we just obey and conform and do exactly what the culture wants and do exactly what men want and do exactly what whoever wants, that we'll have the life of our dreams. And I mean, the truth is the hard truth is that's a lie. It's simply completely, utterly a lie. Um, conformity does not lead to beauty, does not lead to magic, does not lead to love. Conformity leads to more conformity. And conformity is not about happiness. It's about maintaining the status quo. And so you need to understand what it is you're doing when you're doing it, right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of women don't understand dieting as a simple a gesture of maintaining the status quo. They think that they're working their butts off to make their lives better, and they're just not. Oh, there's so much good stuff in here to talk about. So this idea of (laughs) culture, right? Like I know something that you teach on is this kind of the history of diet culture. Will you talk about that or give kind of whatever overview about that you want? Yeah. um, So diet culture is, I mean, to be honest with you, it's a very big concept and I'm still working through how I want to define it for my own work. Um, Typically what I do when I talk to people about what diet culture is, is I show them a slide that's got like 15 bullet points that kind of of explains um, and goes through the characteristics of diet culture. But let's, let's kind of break it down for one second. Let's just talk, let's define the word diet and let's define the word culture. Okay. So, um, so diet um, is any behavior whose primary goal is weight loss um, and or any behavior whose appeal would be lost if if the maintenance or the acquisition of a thin body weren't part of the weren't part of it. Okay. Um, so a lot of people don't know they're dieting, right? Because like the language is beginning to shift. The behavior is not, but the but the word diet is becoming passe. A lot of people um, don't think of the behavior they're doing as dieting, but if it fulfills either of those two criteria I just mentioned, um, it is dieting. And the and culture, right? Like for our intents and purposes for for this definition, I would say a culture is something that like is so large that you can't opt out of it un- entirely. And a lot of ways that I help people understand diet culture and culture in general, is like, you know, can you imagine going one day um, out and about in the world or watching television or just living a normal day and not hearing about calories or weight or whether food is good or evil? Like, if, you know, and the truth is most people cannot, right? Because like we're inundated with messages on TV. We're inundated by messages all around us in like various various media, um, whenever you go out and interact with another person, even if you're not, even if you're alone and you're at a restaurant, you're going to overhear conversations most likely. I mean, I always hear people talking about food policing, like this food is good. This food is bad. This is what I did this week to become thinner or more fit. You know, all of these kinds of uh, conversations that are happening that we're inundated by. And that's kind of the, the scope of it, right? That it's so big that it's almost like the air that we breathe, right? Because we can't necessarily opt out of it um, all the way. And so that's that's kind of what those two concepts mean. And diet culture is kind of characterized by a number of things. Um, 
one of them being the education in fat hatred and and fat anxiety and weight gain anxiety begins very young you know mo- like research shows that children by the age of 5 understand that fat is a very bad thing and that you should avoid it by any means there's this one study where they asked a group of 5 year olds if they would rather lose an arm or be fat and they chose losing an arm overall um, another <sighs> characteristic um, yeah is like is the it's is the present Yes, totally. Um, But like many things in our culture, um, the education in them begin and are cemented in in early childhood, such that it's very difficult to change the behavior in adulthood. Um, And so, and like, if you think about it, right, like the biggest cultural lessons we receive are, are happening at that age, unfortunately, lessons around gender, lessons around like who's good and bad, who's beautiful and ugly, you know, all these kinds of things. It's really sad that children start out being able to see this beautiful, magical world in all of its in- incredibleness. And they lose that because the culture just takes it away from us, you know? Um, and so another characteristic of diet culture is like the character, the characterizing of food and certain kinds of bodies as morally inferior or superior. Um, there's a number of other sort of um, characteristics of diet culture, but essentially at the end of the day, it's it's like the the cornerstone of diet culture is that you know we should always be working to become as thin as possible um, and that it is okay to treat people who are fat in a, in a negative way. It's okay to ostracize fat people. Um, it's okay to be mean to fat people. Um, and that, that, exper- that, that sort of marginalization and bigotry is a, is a manifestation of an acute anxiety um, and um, I, we can get more into it later, but that's just kind of a, a primer yeah, that's so, it's funny listening to you talk about this idea of culture as something that's so big that we can't opt out of. I don't know that I've ever heard it put that way before, but it makes, not only does it make so much sense, because of course you're right. And when you were saying, oh, imagine going a day without, you know, that kind of messaging. I, I mean, I can't even working from home, right? Just like being a person in the world, being a person on the internet. I can't imagine that. And, but at the same time, hearing you say that, something about that almost felt freeing to me that, well, if you can't totally opt out of it, okay, well, it's not, I'm not doing something wrong that these messages exist. I don't know. There's just, maybe that's a weird reaction, but there's something freeing in, oh, culture's like, it's really big. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that. I mean, I think a lot of times, I mean, again, especially with women, we've been taught that the problem, the fundamental problem is within us. And so when I tell women, no, <laughs> it's not inside of you. It's outside of you. Um, there's something very liberating about that, right? Because we've been taught to take it all on, like, right? Like women are fundamentally dieting, right? Because they've been taught that something's wrong with them and, and not something, there's not something wrong with the world that taught them that something was wrong with them. Right. And I, I'm like, what a lot of times what I do, and I, and when I visually imagine my work, I often imagine like my hands, like going into a person and taking that ball of anger and shame and like placing it outside of their body and like you know into into the air outside of them so that they can see the that 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 fucking ball of shame is not theirs it's not it's not anything that's wrong with them it's something outside of them um and so I I totally understand why that's freeing yeah it reminds me the way that I found your work I I think I told you this is through my friend Isabel Fox Duke who was on the show uh I don't know many seasons ago and one of the things that we've talked about in that I think she said in that episode 
it's like this idea, I mean, fundamentally that diets don't work, right? Which is like even being able to get to the point where we believe that when we have, as you said, been taught that it's not that this diet is wrong. Something's wrong with me. I failed. I don't have enough willpower. I'm broken whatever. That It's this like fundamentally like incredibly powerful shift that happens when you're like, no, 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 this system is broken and I'm not going to do this entire system anymore. And that that's something that, I mean, is I think hard for a lot of people to even wrap their minds around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, man, there's so much stuff that I want to talk about in here, but um, (laughs) I, something that you said before about that, the language of dieting or like the word dieting, that that's something that's maybe we're not using as much anymore. It doesn't mean that the behaviors don't exist, that it's almost taking on like a new iteration. I think about that a lot in terms of the kind of confusing, slippery slope of language that's used around health, right? And like the weird way that we police each other's choices. Because like I could see someone's reaction to all of your wonderful work being like, well, but but health, right? Like, but like, but for my health. So I'm curious how you think about that. Yeah, I mean, um, I have so many thoughts. Like the first thought I've kind of realized is, uh, well, so health is often, so health is, is a language that is used to obscure bigotry, right? And this has kind of happened for a long time, right? Like, I mean, essentially the the concept of health has been used to substantiate the oppression of women, right? Like doctors were, doctors advocated for the inferiority of women, arguing things like, because we have a uterus, we have extra blood that needs to go to our uterus and can't go to our brain. And therefore men are superior because they have more blood flow to their brain. These were doctors who were saying this, right? Like the, the, the people, the, the, the people who are the arbiters, the people who arbitrate what health looks like are the people. And, you, and I think about things like, um, you know, phrenology, right? Like the idea that you could measure someone's skull and, be, and, and decide whether they were intelligent or not. Um, the idea of like, you know, eugenics, right? Like all of these kinds of really complicated, um, uh, really awful and very oppressive historical campaigns have all been waged under the banner of health under the banner of like with the sanctioning of the medical industry. And I I don't like, and I'm not, I'm not somebody who is like, I mean, I go to the hospital, I take medicine. Like I'm totally all about medical technology. I think what's a bummer is that there's, there's an agenda, unfortunately by, by like certain members within that community that I think is really unfortunate, right? Like there's all this incredible technology that could actually be helping far more people, far more effectively. And it is because of the entrenched bigotry that that technology is not being amplified the way that it should, unfortunately. Um, so I'm often like when I went sort of, I was just talking about this the other day where I'm like, it's really important to have a critical lens when you look at the history of the ways in which the word and the concept of health has been used because it's consistently been used to further marginalize people on the borders of society. And I think of like fat people at, in that way. Um, the other thing that's important to know is that we're at a point in history. I was just listening to an interview about this the other day, um, where language and meaning have never been farther apart, have never been more detached at any point in like the history of language. Um, and there's a lot of forces behind that, but, 
But at the end of the day, what matters is that you need to understand that a lot of times what people are saying is not what they're meaning, right? And I'll give you another example mm. outside of this. Um, like a very common rallying cry for years and years among neoconservatives was America for Americans, right? And I think anybody who's like left of center knows what that phrase means. But if you look at just the phrase right? There's nothing, there's nothing incendiary about the word American or the word for. There's only two words in that phrase, right? And so there's nothing inherently um, troubling or concerning about those words. Um, but yet, you know that there's an agenda, you know, there's a meaning, right? There's like something else beyond that behind that phrase. And I think that you need to bring that same critical lens into talking about this issue. At the end of the day, um, fat phobia and fat concerns and like the way that people treat fat people is bigotry. And there's no, and for me, I'm like, at the end of the day, um, if you truly believe in the health the, like the universal health and wellness of human beings, you would fundamentally know that treating them poorly, making them feel like they're sick, making them feel like they don't belong, refusing to date them, refusing to be around them, refusing to hire them, which is all the realities of being fat right now in this culture. None of those things lead to health, either emotional, physical, or mental. Um, and I think the last thing I want to say is um, they, a paper came out at the end of 2015 that I was super fascinated by. Um, and I can't remember the journal it was published in, but it was talking about a concept called um, minority stress. So there's there's this interesting body of research called minority stress theory. And it's so interesting. So like if you're interested, it's just so good. It's so good. But it talks about essentially the physiological ramifications of ongoing marginalization. And typically they do this with communities like, <clears throat> like the black community in America or the gay community. Right. <clears throat> um, but recently they did it with fat people and they sort of did a, a huge sample size. There were like 10, like 20,000 people they sampled or something. And they found that, um, that it was the ongoing experience of fat discrimination that, that was most correlated to decreased physiological health and, and, and like shortened lifespan. Um, and it was just, it just blew my mind. Right. You know, and it, it kind of, I mean, and to me, it like, it really confirmed some suspicions that I had about, um, about some of the research about fatness. Um, but I think it's really important to begin to kind of mitigate some of the cultural beliefs we have about fatness and fat people with some critical analysis, which is not what's, which is what's not happening right now. Right now, we're just looking at incredibly biased, very bigoted research um, that confirms pre-existing so, like social ideas about fatness. Um, and I think it's really important for us to go in and really think, think critically and honestly, is it okay? Like, are we culturally okay with treating an entire group of people the way that we treat fat people? And I really hope the answer is no. Um, and so moreover, more so than, than this health conversation is this, is this greater sort of social imperative towards rectifying a deep historical wrong. Yeah, I mean, so this, you mentioned bigotry, right? Which uh, reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you about that you said on your blog. You said, being in or around shared public space really seems to bring out the bigotry in people. And I was hoping you could expand on that. Yeah. Um, so in my experience, 
it is um, it is shared public spaces where there is a sense of scarcity that brings out people's um, vitriolic fat phobia. <clears throat> so um, to give you an example, I found, so I recently got a car after years of living in San Francisco without a car. I mean, there's a really great public transportation system. Um, so um, I kind of had a, hypo- a hypothesis that if I got a car that I would be able to eradicate between 80 and 90% of the fat phobia, like the, the in, interpersonal, like fat hatred, like someone's calling me a slur in public. Um, I would get, I would be able to get rid of it by 80 to 90, 90%. And I was right. Right. Like I think what's really unfortunate is that now that I drive most places and I don't take the train most places, I have been able to, um, make, improve my life by avoiding people's really intense hatred of me, um, as a fat woman in public. Um, and you know, before I got the car, I started to realize that, um, like during specific hours, like when like heavy commuter hours, like in the morning or in the, in the evening when the office jobs get out. And also when schools get out, when kind of, there's a lot of people on a train or in a sort of a, a sort of compact public space, um, that, those are the times when I would experience people being really, really bigoted towards me, you know, flat out being aggressive, um, oftentimes calling me names. At, at one point, this I was sitting next to um, this woman and you know, I asked her, she had this kind of like umbrella or something that was sharp and it was kind of, or kind of hard and it was poking into my leg. And I just kind of asked her, if there's there any way that you could kind of maybe move the umbrella a bit because it's poking into my leg. And she said, you have a lot of nerve asking for that at your size. You know, and it, just, it was just like, no. just like, just, yeah, just like things like that over and over and over again. That That's like, that's not even the worst thing, right? Like, I mean, I've had multiple occasions where people, um, say really awful things to me. And I think a lot of it has to do with, um, both my size and my gender, right? The idea is like that women are supposed to be small and not take up space. Um, and fat people and fat women just don't do that, right? Like there's already this pre-existing fat hatred that's totally socially acceptable. Um, and then you add the kind of like sexism of the idea that women shouldn't take up space. And you've got this kind of like perfect storm of like, bigotry and hatred that I was just at the center of, you know? Um, so I started to not out of shame, out of actually self care and survival. I started to not use the trains during the heavy traffic peaks, um, you know, that are three times a day when school gets out the beginning, the early commute and the late in the evening commute. Um, and that was just kind of like some harm reduction that I was doing for myself. Obviously I think everyone knows a lot of people know that, um, Travel, air travel is extremely anxiety inducing um, for fat people. Like when I uh, did the trip to Jamaica um, with a group of women, you know, there were a couple of women who almost canceled, like literally were like, you know, I don't, I, it was like they were willing to give up their deposit and everything else because they were so afraid of flying. Um, and so I, I think that people don't realize the acute anxiety that fat people, um, just deal with every day and interacting with the world. Right. But in general, like I've noticed that in confined public spaces where people feel, um, some sense of like, you know, 
people need to take up as little space as possible and each person is allotted a certain amount of space. Very survival-oriented thinking, right? Like, um, you know, that that these kind of like really um, horrible, entrenched, fatphobic attitudes really come out in very vicious ways. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that makes sense. In the, in the airplane travel thing, the thing that popped into my mind immediately was the essay that Lindy West wrote about that in her book. Um, right, yeah. She talked about that, too. I So uh, something else I wanted to ask you about, I love your advice column for Wear Your Voice magazine. Um, yeah. And there was one question, you know, that, that a reader sent in, in particular, that I can see being probably a really common question. It was something about, like, is it possible to lose weight while still rejecting diet culture? I mean, I think this person had a couple of specifics or a reason why they wanted to lose weight. I don't really remember, but I feel like that kind of dichotomy or thinking about those two things, will you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, the, the more important question to me is, you know, do we need to be talking about weight loss, um, and dieting in, in this, in this greater conversation around letting go of body shame and letting go of weight loss culture. And I think the answer is no, right? Like, and for me, I mean, I guess in my head, I I don't know a great analogy for it, but in the, in the way, like, for example, I mean, I think of it as, you know, you're having a meeting about a very important issue, right? Like the survival of a company and, um, and somebody wants to talk to you about whether or not you guys should be ordering water. And, <laughs> and I'm just like, right, maybe another meeting, another day, when we're not talking about the survival of the fundamental thing here, we could talk about this other thing. Um, but I don't, I just don't feel in a lot of ways, to me, it doesn't feel like something we need to spend time processing, right? Like we don't need to spend more time processing, um, weight loss, like in, in this convert, like, I guess what I'm saying is, um, God, I mean, I have so many thoughts and they're all coming into (laughs) my brain, like a runaway train. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess what's hard is I find that a lot of times when people are like, but weight loss is still important to me, but I want to be body positive or whatever. I find that that conversation detracts from the bigger conversation. And that's the problem, right? Not, not that this person's issues aren't real and important, but rather that like maybe, maybe right now in this particular context, they are, they are very distracting, right? Because what's, what's happening is the truth is that dieting for many women is a life destroying reality. Um, it is something that women need to really focus on getting away from. And I think that there's a, when you're really new to a healing process, um, that's not the time to start focusing on the gray area or the like 2%, you know, population who, you know, who want, who needs this attention, you know? And I think that's the thing, right? Because healing is a process. Like I think about like, if you think about somebody who's just had an injury, um, what they need is to just be completely like they need to be in bed. They need to take they need to have a lot of liquids. They, their, their, their body is in distress. They need to completely focus on just healing the wound. Right. And then once they can get up and walk around and start to take in more of the world, maybe they can start to think about these more complex issues. Like, how do I want to be a healed person or whatever? Like, what is my life going to look like when I'm able to get out of this better? Like, whatever. Um, but 
but right now I feel like most, most people around this issue around dieting, they're in acute distress. They are in that like extremely volatile place where they don't need to have these like confusing ideas that I think could ultimately drag them back into that dark place um, very easily. They don't need to have that on their plate as well. And I think the other thing that I really want to add is, and I think that, you know, I don't know, I, I, I think this might come off as a bit harsh, but this is what I truly believe. I think that there's a vociferous minority who are very committed to dragging the fat positive, body positive conversation into the dieting domain because they have an agenda, right? They essentially want both to have the community support of the people who are working their asses off to try and liberate themselves from diet culture. And they still want to be able to get the sort of, the sort of like cultural pat on the back for still being a dieter. And and I think that's honestly, that's honestly what we're looking at A, a very, very, very small minority of people who are extremely conflicted. And the truth is that I'm asking them to pick the liberation side. And if they don't want to, that they go ahead and like continue to get that pat on the back, but don't, don't do it. Don't throw other people on on, under the bus because you need to have both, you know? Yeah. I mean, yes, I don't think that sounds harsh at all. I think that sounds honest. (laughs) And this (laughs) idea of choosing liberation, what does that look like to you? Like, what do you mean when you say that? Um, I mean, I I often use the phraseology of breaking up, right? Um, for me, freedom and liberation um, are about breaking up with um, mainstream culture, right? Like mainstream culture um, is a very toxic, harmful entity. I think we, I think what's hard is most people sense it, but they don't know it right? A lot of people are sad, anxious, depressed, they're listless, they don't have direction, right? Like they're kind of like they're confused and they're low grade unhappy and they don't know why. And the truth is it's because they've been taught to extinguish every beautiful, magical, unique thing about them in the name of conformity. And conformity is what mainstream culture is, okay? So so in my head, I'm like, break up with conformity, because conformity, all conformity is is doing is making you conform more. <laughs> and conformity is not about amplifying individuals. Conformity is not about, you know, making you happy. Conformity is not about all the things that humans are meant to have and do. It's about extinguishing those things. And so what I'm asking people to do, what I think, what I think, I feel like I'm hopefully giving people permission to listen to that voice inside of them that's telling them that they're not happy. Um, And to go, and to go towards the, the voice that's saying, like to go towards the other thing. And they might not know what that other thing is. Right. And that's okay. Um, But for me, liberation is that like liberation is choosing me rather than choosing the culture all the time. Like I think of it um, almost like, you know, you're making a bet, right? And what the culture teaches you to do is to put all the chips on the house and never on yourself. And what I'm saying is, what if you took every fucking one of those chips and took it out of the house and put it on you? What would your life look like? What would you do? Do that thing. Yeah, I think a lot for, or something that I think a lot personally about is this idea of 
I don't know how we're sort of taught to put off happiness. Kind of, I I refer to it in my head as like the I'll be happy when syndrome, right? Like I'll be happy when, you know, I'm not single or when I get a promotion or when I lose X amount of weight or, you know, whatever. I think it could apply in a lot of different situations. And like, even that I think is something that probably everyone can relate to. And yet, it still is hard to break. It's like, it's almost like this teaching yourself to be like, well, no, I don't have to put my life on hold to wait for this form of validation that might or might not be coming in the future. It's, I don't know. I think that's a hard thing to work for me. That's a hard thing to work through. No, absolutely. Because you know why? Because you have to be in the present then you have to be embodied, right? Like if you're not living in the future, you have to live right now. And most people are terrified of that because they're unhappy period. Right. Um, and the truth is, and I think what's hard is, oh, this is what's so hard. It's the grand paradox of the echo chamber, right? Is that people are doing the messed up thing in order to prevent doing the mess. Like the thing that's supposed to heal the messed up thing is more messed up things. Right. Um, I think, and, and the truth is right. Like, like I was saying about lose, hate, not wait, like, Guess what? If your behavior is based in hatred, you're never going to get love in the same way that you can't, you know, you can't like magically, I don't know. I'm like, I was, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of, I have, I have such weird metaphors. I'm like, it's like trying to make cheese with, with rocks. I don't know. <laughs> like, just, you, know you know, you can't make cheese with rocks. It's like a thing. Um, and I don't know, but it, it's like, I just think, you know, <clears throat> fundamentally, um, dieting, all these various things, like this future oriented way of thinking is evidence of distress, right? Like is evidence of you being unwilling to be in this moment. It's disassociation, right? And if you're disassociating, you are not happy. If you are disassociating, you are not fulfilled, right? And like, this is what, and and disassociation is what dieting, right? Like it is essentially, it's like this idea that you kind of, um, you know, disassociate from your desire, disassociate from your body, disassociate from, you know, your, this moment, this current moment, right? And like, it's this fantasy that keeps us stuck. It keeps us imprisoned. Um, and I completely understand why, um, like why people are doing this because there's an epidemic, of unhappiness that we're unwilling to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, because at the end of the day, you you can buy all the shit that you want and that shit may or may not make you, like, right? Like, the shit isn't going to make you happy in the same way that, like, if you're not fundamentally already there, if you're not fundamentally in a place where you know that you're okay, that you deserve love, that you deserve dignity, that you deserve freedom, like, if you don't believe those things, nothing is going to give you that. And I think what's really hard is, I mean, and I learned this lesson really hard in my last relationship. I got into a relationship with a man who was all the things, right? Like, you know, he bought a big house overlooking the Pacific Ocean. We would like whale watch from the living room while we were drinking expensive wine that was in his tiny little, like in his wine refrigerator, right? Like, it's just, like all the, you know, and I think about like that whole life that we were living and how I was so... I was so unhappy and all my friends knew it. Right. And, and it's like, they were telling me like, you know, just get out of it. Like you're not happy. And I was like, no, no, no. I have all the things. This story is what matters. The thing is what matters. Right? Like I'm in this thing and, and what matters is that I'm successful. What matters is that I look successful. Um, and, and the truth is like, 
you know, it, it was, it was really hard. Right. Because I was like, at the end of the day, like he worked so much that we couldn't do anything. Right. Like, like he made all this money, but he was, he like was enslaved to his job. We couldn't go anywhere. Like, and whenever we went anywhere, we had to go at the last second. It was like three days and we go to, we'd end up in like Arizona in the middle of July because he had like a, well, two days between, a, between cases. Right. Um, we couldn't go anywhere. Cause he'd too, be too exhausted. He'd be like falling asleep at the dinner table. Right. We couldn't go anywhere nice to eat or anything because he'd be falling asleep so what did our life look like like we were eating fucking pizza watching netflix i mean like i just sort of i'm like this is the truth people this is the truth like just like it's okay to look at this shit in the face and be like you know this is the reality um that that the conformity will not ever be the path to these kinds of like more magical beautiful things and that's not to say that you can't have nice things, right? Like I love wine. I love looking at whales. Um, but you know, I don't have to live my entire life in this particular way in order to get those things. And that's like the narrative we've been sold. Like that you, you either are like completely, you know, you're like living an abject life or you're living an opulent life. And the, the truth is there's not, it's not like that. There's not like, um, there's not that level there doesn't have to be that black and white thingy. I think I've gone on a bit of a tangent. No, but, no, no, no. I um, love it. I love it. It's, it's, well, but it's this idea of like the being really kind of awake to and honest with yourself about the cultural pats on the back and whether or not you want to participate in that. Like there is sort of a pat on the back for, you know, buying, having the big house, right? Or being in a relationship with someone that has, you know, you're going to drink the nice wine or do the things the same way that with this weird morality that we put around thinness, that there's a, a pat on the, even if you're missing miserable in pursuit of it, there is like a pat on the back for trying sort of, I think, I mean, I don't even know if I'm phrasing that in a way that makes sense, but it's like, so it's a weird thing to have to be like, I'm going to step outside of this thing that gives me validation, even if I'm unhappy to pursue this other thing. And like with the understanding that there's going to be plenty of people that just fundamentally don't understand or argue against it. Or it's like what you said, putting the chips on you instead of on the house. And like, it's a bigger shift, I think, than I have realized it's a bigger shift than it sounds like. It's one of those things that's like easy to say, like self-love, right? It's like such yeah, a buzzword, but what that's does it. self-love look like as a practice, right? Like it's easier said than done, I think, which I mean is, is just being honest, you know? Right. No. And I think what, what's, what's important to realize, I mean, I absolutely agree with you. It's like, it's a, it's a journey. It's a process. It's not linear. It's complicated. It, it's like, it's the, it's the deepest um, long-term relationship that you're ever going to have, right. Um, is the one with yourself. And I think what's really hard is all this conformity stuff, the pat on the back, like that we're living for that pat on the back is a sign of trauma of, is a sign of like the culture having stolen our inherent sense of worth. Right. And we need to figure out how to get that back. And that looks different for different people. Right. We have to, but we have to like make that our life goal it is in my opinion. Right. Um, because when you're living for a person outside of you, um, you'll just be chasing that forever. And, and I, and I, and, and I think that like in my own life, I see that in my childhood, I see that, that cultural education in pursuing approval by any means necessary. I learned that when I was five, you know, I learned that when boys were telling me that I was ugly and fat all the time, right? Like, like that I was taught those things. And so I think that it's important to, 
remember that we have that knowledge inside of us. Like that is the knowledge that we're born with, the knowledge that we're worthy, that we're, that we're worthy of love, that we're worthy of respect, that we're worthy of like freedom. Right. And that we like, we know how to be free. We're born with that knowledge. And I think what's really sad and I think what's really hard for people. And I know, I know this is a a big pill to swallow for many, many people. Like, I mean, I've, I've been, I've been practicing this for a decade. So it feels very intuitive and obvious to me. Um, but, um, I think what is really, really uh, the, the big pill to swallow is to recognize that there are a lot of things about our culture that are about annihilating our soul. Um, and I think we all make jokes about it. Like I remember when I used to work in an office, I would make this joke constantly where I was like, they know that you're only productive for four hours. They're just willing to subsidize the re- the extra four to just kill your spirit. And I was <laughs> like, you know, and I think like I was, you know, it was a joke and all my coworkers would laugh about it. But I think there's like an incredibly large grain of truth to that, oh, yeah. to that, like that sentiment. And I think the truth is like, we, we sense it around us, you know, but a lot of times we, we, we've been taught to shut that down. We've been taught to kind of stifle that, that sense. And I, and what I would argue is to lean into that sense, right? Like when you're having a feeling, um, what is that feeling trying to tell you? Like lean into it rather than, rather than like attempting to, to go further away from it. Yeah. So you mentioned something interesting, this idea that, oh, well, this is really intuitive to you now, right? After a decade, right? But so thinking back to, you know, maybe when you were first consciously breaking up with diet culture, like what, what did that look like at the beginning? Like, were there any kind of tangible steps you took or this idea of self-love as an actual practice, like anything specific that you can speak to? Yeah, I mean, I want to begin by saying that I was extraordinarily resistant to breaking up with diet culture. I was, I had a lot of internalized fat phobia. Um, I could not imagine my life without dieting in it. And I had a lot of feelings about other fat people who were living liberated lives. Um, I was very threatened by them. I mean, in a given, I didn't meet many, um, but you know, in the, like the occasional time that that I would meet, especially another fat woman who like didn't express hatred towards her body. I was extremely threatened and angry. Um, and so it's very normal to have resistance, um, especially if you're somebody who is fat because you've been taught to hate yourself and other people who look like us. Right. So, um, I think that's really normal. And I just want to say like, you know, um, to have a lot of patience and compassion with yourself. If you're in that situation, I'm not saying like go bravely forward and being a hater, right? Like that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying that like to really begin to see that sense of threat and that sense of reluctance as, um, as normal parts of like a transition, um, not for everybody, but for many people. So I, I want to, I want to be honest in saying that it was not an easy process for me. Um, and, it was only through, um, honestly, through community that I really began to shift, right? There were these individuals I would meet who would tell me that I was like beautiful or whatever, you know, especially people I was dating, um, that I was sexy and that I was worthy and all these kinds of things. And that was really great. Um, but it was only through, um, beginning to be around other fat women in particular, um, that who, who didn't have self-loathing, who helped, like, I mean, rather who were really working through it, like who were really working on their liberation, 
who, um, you know, wore really amazing outfits and tiny bathing suits and wore lipstick that they loved and you kind of were living loudly. Um, that was really the transition point for me. Um, I think another really big one, and this is something I work with people on in Babe Camp, the online course that I teach. The first thing that we do is we we interrogate diet culture. When you begin to understand that diet culture is part of a bigger historical reality, um, and you begin to really dig into the layers of the history of dieting, um, that is very, very, very helpful in understanding dieting as an expression of oppression, right? Like, let me, I'm going to give you a quick, um, little like history lesson that I think is really powerful for people. So, um, modern day dieting in a lot of ways started in, um, the 1800s, there was a man named um, Reverend Sylvester Graham who invented the graham cracker, interestingly enough. Um, and he was the leader of uh, a movement called the Dietary Reform Movement. And the people who were his followers believed that um, you could achieve a higher moral plane um, through being selective about what you ate. And they believed that you know delicious, well-seasoned, fatty, rich foods led to immorality. Um, another interesting thing about Dr. Sylvester Graham is that he was a very active um, anti-circumcision spokesperson, or rather a circumcision spokesperson. He was pro-circumcision. Um, and he believed that masturbation was really, really evil and that having sex for fun was really, really evil and that in order to prevent those things that you should aggressively circumcise boys and girls. Um, and so he, like, he literally would write out these lectures where he would advocate for pouring pure carbolic acid onto clitorises in order to, to sort of cure masturbation. Um, and so, you know, and I think that like for me that there's something so powerful in the idea that dieting began um, in a lot of ways by a man uh, because of a man who wanted to stop sexual pleasure through food. Um, and you know, so he invented the graham cracker, which was less flavorful than the, than our current iteration of graham crackers. Yeah. Graham but crackers are delicious the, now. Yeah. 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 No, he believed that like, um, he was like a big fan of unleavened bread. He was obsessed with like there being like, you know, anyway, he just, he was like a believer that you could use food in order to to create morality, right? And like the more delicious food was, the more sexual you would be, and that was bad. And um, and so I, I, when we when you kind of have the context, when you get deeper into understanding what dieting is, like both historically and the symbolic nature of dieting, I think it's really hard once you understand that to really go back. You know, like if you don't know what dieting is, really, like at the core, the disgusting, nasty, like like suppurating sore that is dieting. <laughs> if you don't know what it is, it's sometimes hard to, to stop doing it, you know, but when you, when you interrogate it and you can kind of pick it apart, um, that's been, that's been very, very helpful for me. I'm somebody who has to theoretically wrap my head around something before I can have a uh, behavioral change. That's how I work. Um, so if, if I can't understand it, if I can't, know the dimensions of it. Um, it's very hard for me to shift behavior. And so, um, 
that's what I do when I work with people is like, that's the first thing we talk about is I'm like, before we do any more dieting, you need to know exactly what you're doing. Right. What and you're so, participating I, in by choosing to. Yeah. 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 And so I think like those who like community and truly understanding uh, are two like have been really two important like concrete steps for me. Yeah, that reminds me of something that my best friend Jamie and I talk about all the t- all the time. This idea that like once you know something, you can't unknow it, right? And so like right. even I'm never yeah. going to forget that little piece of like context and history that you just told me. I've never heard that before, but I'm never ever going to forget it. I'm never going to be able to hear about dieting <laughs> and not have that in the back of my head. And that's awesome, right? Yes. Like this idea that. Yeah, making shining light on things and uh, providing, like you said, context and information. I don't know. I, I I think that's brilliant. It makes me want to ask you. So you mentioned Babe Camp, your your program that you teach. Tell me, just tell me about that. So, um, Babe Camp is a four week online course, um, and it's it's sort of got a few components. I'm sort of shifting it right now, but essentially, you get for Monday through Friday, you get an email. Um, in your inbox and each week there's a different focus. So each week is a different theme. Um, and like, for example, week one is what is diet culture and why is it effing ruining your life? Right. And that's where we really get into the, into the kind of the information that I was talking about. Um, and then it kind of progresses. Right. But the purpose of babe camp is like, um, to break up with diet culture and take up your rightful place in the babe pantheon. Right. Um, that's kind of like the mission statement of babe camp. And so we have the each day, um, the email comes with kind of like an image and a little bit of a mantra and there's kind of like a deeper like lesson. And then there's a, there's an activity kind of like a five to 10 minute, um, behavior that focuses on the lesson and sort of allows you to practice the lesson in real life. Um, and then I just added a Facebook component. So I really, I just sort of beta tested it in a lot of ways. Um, and it was amazing, right? Like it was incredible to have a community of people all going through the same experience and helping to support one another. And then I would step in when there were questions and things like that. So I love the Facebook component. Um, and then the there's a final element of two lectures, two 30 minute lectures where I kind of go deeper into the material. Um, and I just announced the dates, the summer session is coming up. Um, and then also the fall session. So, um, you can look on my website, virgitovar.com for more details. Yeah, that's awesome. And this is timely too, right? If a summer session is coming up. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I love that. Something so, I guess, I mean, not topic change because it's all under the same umbrella, but I I don't even know how to word what I want to say. But something that I have been thinking about that, again, I think it was probably Isabel who mentioned this or raised the idea of that it was kind of something along the lines of like, why thin women like also need to care about this, right? Or this idea that like diet culture hurts everyone, um, which is something that I hadn't ever really heard talked about before. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, um, I think the, the way that um, smaller bodied women are dealing with this is that they're having incredible anxiety about weight gain, mm, <laughs> right? Yeah. This is kind of what it does, right? It like that essentially um, fat phobia, the way that it works and, and, and the way that it 
all oppression works is that we are all sort of paying um, an unnamed, unspoken price when any other community is is suffering, right? Um, and this is this is like the big kind of this is becoming more and more and more evident to me every day. It's like I think in my life, in my as I walk around in my life, I'm like, wow, you know, we we live in such a beautiful place. Like, imagine imagine if like we weren't, if this culture didn't depend upon certain people being marginalized and, and like kept down like fat people, like any number of communities. Like, I think what we don't realize the unnamed, the unspoken price is like the beautiful world, like how much more beautiful this world could be if we weren't living in fear and living in this idea and this mythology of scarcity, we have no idea what, what that world could look like. Right. Because we're kind of in this one. And, um, what I've come to realize is that fat phobia and diet culture cuts both ways. Right. Um, people are extraordinarily afraid of uh, becoming fat because they see how fat people are treated. And the truth is the people who are witnessing that treatment rather than experiencing it are deeply afraid of becoming those, of becoming like treated the same way. Right. Because I think at the end of the day, what fat phobia does is that it isolates and ostracizes fat people and human beings are terrified of being ostracized because we're social creatures, right? Like the worst thing you can do to a human is to shut them off from other human contact. And that's what oppression does. That's what stigma does. That's what fat phobia does. Um, and so of course, like I think at the end of the day, whether people can really access it or not, um, the way that it affects thin women is that they're living in fear of becoming that thing. Um, and, and like, and the reality is that our bodies are, are unpredictable, right? You don't necessarily, you can do any number of things and still end up having these particular outcomes that the culture perceives as negative, right? Um, and so there's no way that you can like guarantee that you're never going to experience that, right? And like, I think even about um, the way that aging women and like older women are treated sort of very similarly to fat women in a lot of ways. And we're all going to age. We're all going to get right, old. Right? right. And so it's like, we, I think we, we have like this greater commitment um, to eradicating like the suffering and the negative experiences of other people that are happening because of a social problem like fat phobia. Yeah. When you mentioned before that the only way that you or the main way that you operate is by knowing kind of like the context, right? Or being able to put logic or information around things. Something for me, this might sound really weird, but I find it really helpful in any situation, especially like the type of thing that we're talking about that has like such deep roots is to follow the money, right? This idea of like, okay, who benefits by me being obsessed with what I eat or my body or whatever, like which industries have something to lose? Who's in charge of this industry? Like making it a little bit less emotional and more like, oh, everything, I mean, maybe this sounds cynical, I don't know, like everything's about money and like that there really are people who, and enti- I mean, of course it's like a multi-billion dollar industry, right? That, like there's a lot yeah. residing on us continuing to play this game, right? Or, you know, if all of a sudden every, I mean, obviously we're talking specifically about women, if every woman st- 
all the time and energy spent into dieting or body changing or weight loss or any of these things, if all of that was just free time to do other things, like how much would topple or how much, like I find it, I don't know, it's helpful yes. for me to be like, oh, okay, like there's actually someone who is benefiting from things continuing the way they are and that person is not me. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot. And we talk about in babe camp where I recently, we were just talking about it a lot. Um, and I, uh, I was talking about, um, the way, like how, whenever there is a widespread cultural phenomenon, especially if it's negative and hurts a lot of people, we have to ask ourselves, what does the culture need from this phenomenon, right? Like, I think that we can, I feel like in working with the number of people I've worked with, I think I can say without a doubt that dieting ruins lives. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's ruining a lot of women's lives right now. Um, and, and so in my mind, I'm like, okay, so let's take this reality, the, the widespread cultural reality of women's lives being ruined by their obsession with having a thin body. And we have to ask ourselves, like, what are our theories about what the culture needs from this? And so I think it makes a lot of sense. And th this is just, this is just critical thinking 101. You know, it's literally just that I think that that's so healing, right? To take the moment, to take the space in order to step back and look at the bigger picture and ask your questions and look for the answers. And this is something that we're not taught to do, right? And I think there's a lot of cultural mechanisms in place that keep women from having that space in order to ask those questions and audit their life and figure out what they want and what they don't want. Absolutely. So there's, I mean, two more things that I would love to ask you about. I've heard you talk in different contexts on your blog, whatever, otherwise, um, really intelligently, I mean, about everything, but specifically about setting boundaries. Um, and I was hoping that you would talk about that a little more. Yes. I mean, I'm so obsessed with boundaries. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, right. Like, and boundaries are a lot of things, right? A lot of people think of boundaries as, um, the things you say no to, but boundaries are also the things you say yes to. That's what's so beautiful about boundaries, right? Um, boundaries are a manifestation, an expression of desire, right? Like a thing that you do want, a thing that you don't want, who you want to be around, who you don't want to be around. And I really, I really think it's so important for women to focus on our desire. Um, so boundaries manifest in a lot of different ways. Um, again, like one of the things I do a lot with people is, um, I ask them to audit their lives. Um, and especially around body image, what and who are the things that are making you feel really great? And what and who are the things that are making you not feel really great? And to begin to kind of really write it down, like, you know, um, like I often advocate for people to keep a diary um, for a week or two. If you can do it for a month, great. But you go through every day and you kind of write down um, the thing, like a thought that you had that was maybe negative about your body or positive. Oftentimes it's negative thoughts, unfortunately. Then you write down what triggered the thought. And then you write down what are some other ways that I could deal with this? Like a perfect example is, you know, it's really hot outside. Um, I would like to wear a sleeveless top and the negative thought might be my arms are too big for me to wear, uh, a sleeveless top. And then you'd go in and be like, where does that idea come from? 
Maybe I just watched a show about it. Maybe in my case, in my personal case, um, I grew up with my grandmother constantly telling me that I had to cover up my arms. And then I go into the third step, which is like, actually, there's nothing wrong with my arms. I deserve to live a life where I feel comfortable um, walking around. It is very hot and I deserve to, um, to be cool. And so that's kind of like the intervention, right? And that's kind of the boundary. Um, and so you kind of just go through and you do that, right? And then you, and with people, right? Like, for example, you know, I have this friend, quote unquote, who is constantly talking about how fat she is or how bad she looks or what diet she's on. Or I have a friend who constantly is telling me that I need to lose weight or is constantly complimenting me if they feel like I'm losing weight or whatever. Um, how does that person make me feel, right? And if they make you feel bad, chances are they do, right? Um, you have the right to set a boundary and boundaries can look very simple. They can look like, okay, I'm going to spend half the time I normally spend with this person um, for the next month. So if you you guys talk twice a week, um, you'll you'll cut it down to one time a week. If you guys spend three hours a month together, you'll spend 1.5 hours together. And you, you do this for about three months and then you kind of go back to the drawing board. You audit, is my life better after having set that boundary? Chances are the answer is yes. And then you go in and you cut it in half again, right? Um, so what's great about boundaries is that you can experiment, right? Kind of like really lean in, take the time, take the space to figure out what do I like? What don't I like? What is this person or experience making me feel like? What do I want to do about it? And boundaries is really that, that final step of like, what do I want to do about it? Do I want to say yes to this or do I want to say no to this? And the truth is you have the right to say yes and no to whatever you want, essentially, right? Like, I mean, there are certain things in our life that we kind of don't have total control over. Like if you're a parent or if you have like a job where you have a boss who has these things, right? But I think that there's a lot of things in our life um, where we can set more boundaries um, and for it just improves your life incredibly when you are listening to your body when it says yes or no. Yeah, I think in my experience, setting boundaries, the thing that really helped for me was thinking of it like a skill or like a muscle that you build like anything else. Like it's way more yeah. uncomfortable at the beginning. Like I remember, um, this could be a much longer story that <laughs> I'm not going to get into, but um, that uh, my mother grew up in her own set of, you know, diet culture, like I think a lot of that generation did, and um, is very prone to commenting on on people's bodies, right? Or specifically to me, and usually in a complimentary sense, but regardless, I didn't I was uncomfortable with how often it was a topic of conversation. And it was so uncomfortable to set that boundary of, we're not going to talk about my body. <laughs> like, we're just not going to do that. And right. it's funny, like, to think back of like boundaries that were so hard to do, but so worth it, right? That, like, this idea that, again, it sounds like just set boundaries, right? Like, that sounds simple, but just because something's simple doesn't mean that it's easy, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth it and that you can't do it anyway. Yes, absolutely. No, and I mean, I remember the first time boundaries as a concept was introduced to me was when I was in college and I had um, started hanging out with a bunch of feminists and I took actually a course that they were teaching kind of on like women's empowerment. Um, and one of the activities we did was practicing saying no and that was the first time in my life that I was given permission to say no. And we actually would get into dyads and 
read scripts and our job was to say no. Right. So I, you know, like imagine for instance, that, you know, like we're, there's a whole class of, of young women and there's groups of two of us and my job is to read a line and your only job is to say no in response, no matter oh what gosh. I say. Oh my gosh. And it was just, it was so powerful. I mean, and it's, it's kind of like scary in retrospect, realizing that I had to have a sort of like contrived incubator in order to be able to feel like I had the right to say no. And it's, I mean, like you, I mean, it's so funny because at the time it was so terrifying, right? Like I just, and at that time I was, I was just starting to experiment with sex in a lot of ways. And, and I didn't feel like I, um, I didn't know how to like negotiate sexually and whatnot. And so like, it was so powerful to have this tool. And now now I'm like so boundaried. It's so natural for me to just go into an exchange. And even when something is just mildly uncomfortable, I'll just say no. It's like, it's like even, even stuff. And I mean, some of the stuff is like gendered stuff. Like I think women are really encouraged not to have boundaries, unfortunately. But just the other day, for example, um, I was out with someone I know and um, there was a dress that I really liked and I bought it. And then it turns out that this person really has a very similar style to me and um, had, had heard about the dress and kind of like wanted me to trot the dress out and show it to her and like explain things about that, you know, and, and I just, I just simply said, no, I mean, I had the bag in my hand. I could have fairly easily taken the dress out of the bag and shown it to her. But I was like, no, I don't owe that to you. Um, <laughs> and I was like, and it, honestly, I do not feel like doing this. And so the answer is no. And it's not like it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't in the energy of like resentment or anything. It was just simply like a no. And I think it's a bit jarring, you know, when it's, it's a fairly innocuous um, request like that. But I'm at a point in my life where I'm like, I don't have to do that labor for somebody who I don't know very well. Um, period. (laughs) You're my spirit animal. I love everything you just said. I think something that I'm working on right now myself that um, sometimes I do better at than other times, right? Like any kind of behavioral change is I'm working on saying no without 10,000 justifications attached to it, which is so surprisingly difficult, which, and I finally realized it comes from like a fear of not being liked, right? Like getting requests. And obviously anytime you do any kind of public work on the internet, right? You get all kinds of requests and usually really well-meaning, right? Or well-intentioned. And, you know, if I'm going to pass on an opportunity or someone invites me to be part of something and for any reason, it's not a good fit for my interest, for my schedule, whatever, you know, thinking that I can't just say, I'm going to pass on that. Like, thanks for thinking of me. I have to, I'm going to pass on that because X, Y, Z, million other things. Like, it's so difficult to say no without justifications. And that's something I'm working on a lot right now. Yes. Yes. I love that. I mean, I think like for the person who is just starting, like just, just starting thinking about this one exercise I think is really effective is like for the next week, just say no one time to one thing each day. Yeah. And (laughs) I think that's like a really useful exercise to start out with. So before we wrap up, is there anything that hasn't come up in the conversation that you definitely wanted to mention? Um, oh my goodness. Well, I have, I mean, I have some things coming up, but I guess you're going to probably link to those or something. Oh yeah. And we'll, we'll do that at the end too, of like ways people can find you and that kind of stuff. I just was wondering if there was anything else on your mind before we do some kind of like rapid fire wrap up questions. If there was anything you were like, Oh, I have to say this thing. (laughs) 
Oh man. I mean, we've covered so much ground. I mean, I guess the last thing I want to say is, um, I know that like we've talked, we've covered so much ground. And I think that, um, for folks who are listening, like, um, just it's just take one thing just kind of like you know what I mean it's like I've just we've kind of gone through like a knowledge information buffet and if you're just feeling like one thing just put the one thing on your plate you know that's okay totally Um, just kind of like chew on that and love that um and if there's stuff and and like take what works for you right like there's some stuff that I might have said where you're like oh girl no right and like just kind of be like okay that's not for you that's not for you right now or possibly ever that's totally fine like just take the thing that really resonates take the thing that like makes you feel more amplified and that makes you feel excited take that thing and like that's that's the gift that I that that like I want to offer whoever is listening yeah I love that so the way that we end these episodes are with what we call community questions so they're questions that the listeners particularly the members of our Patreon community want me to ask all eight guests this season so there are nine kind of random rapid fiery questions if you are down to answer some random questions I'm down (laughs) if you could only watch one TV show for the rest of your life which show would it be Bob's Burgers (laughs) my husband loves that show that's fine (laughs) Um, of everything that you've spent money on in the past few months, what's the purchase that's made you the happiest? OMG. This is so hard. I like always purchase things I love. Um, oh, oh, wait, can we come back to that one? I'm going to let my brain percolate. Totally. Um, Okay, so the next question, what's something that only those in your close inner circle know about you or maybe that people who only know you through social media would be surprised to learn? Um, okay, yeah. I mean, so may I think, so I identify as a bohemian degenerate. That's something that's <laughs> kind of personal. That's I'm amazing. somebody who like has, has, I've like come to realize that um, I'm actually kind of just a beach bum and I love doing the work that I do. But, um, but essentially all I want in life is like pedicures, chihuahuas, like a tiny bathing suit and like really, really delicious snobby coffee. Oh my God. I... <laughs> I literally couldn't like you anymore. That's like the best. So good. Um, What's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? Um, oh man. I mean, this, (laughs) the thing that came to mind was fucking strangers. (laughs) I think I like want to be more, um, romantically and sexually aggressive. And I think there's a part of me that's like, that's a lot of work. And I'm also, so yeah, I'm just going to stick with fucking strangers. Yeah, I mean, that's literally the best answer I've ever heard to this question. Uh, yeah, that's what you're not doing because you're afraid. That's like the full quote from this episode. Um, what's the one song that you always turn up and sing along with when you hear it? What's your jam? Um. Oh, man, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of like maybe... California by Snoop Dogg. I don't know. <laughs> the first answer is always the right answer, right? <laughs> yes. um, what's something that you really love about yourself? Um. Oh, man. I love my... I think my favorite thing about me is my capacity for wonder and my, my curiosity. 
those are great qualities. Yeah. Um, how do you typically spend the first hour of like whatever a regular day is for you? What does that look like? Oh man, honestly, I often spend it in bed. Um, like looking at my work emails or, um, or yeah, like my social media feeds. I'm like, I'm definitely a social media, you know, addict in a lot of ways though. Today I watched, um, John Candy's only the lonely, which was fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's a day starter. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so the next question is about books, which two to three books, any books of any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you reread or recommend the most? Oh man, literally anything written by James Baldwin. Um, I just finished another country and it like changed my life. Um, so, uh, I would recommend another country. Um, I really like, uh, Audrey Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm trying to, I, I can, I have a better time remembering her essay names than, um, her books, but also like an incredible visionary, um, with a lot of wisdom. Um, I'm trying to think of like, you know, and this is, I, I actually was very impacted, um, by a book called the labyrinth of solitude, um, by Octavio Paz. And he also very introspective, um, especially like for me, um, I, my family is Mexican. And so it had a lot of, um, really amazing explanations of like Mexican culture, Mexican psychology that was very impactful to me, but is also just a beautifully written book. I love the range of books and authors that you just mentioned. That's, I mean, I'm an obsessive reader and I feel like this is the best and worst question for me to ask. Cause then I'm like, Oh great. More books that I have to read, but then I love reading them. So significant <laughs> yes. first world problem. Yeah. Um, so returning to the money question, anything come to mind of something that's made you particularly happy to purchase in the last few months? Gosh, I feel like it's either like a crystal or some coffee or, um, okay. I mean the thing that I can cut, Oh man. Oh man. I'm just, I just like bought a bunch of stuff. I'll just stick with, okay, I got a rhinestone covered bustier in Santee Alley in LA somewhat recently and just debuted it and it was pretty magical. So I'm going to stick with that. The uniform of the bohemian degenerate. I love it. (laughs) So good. (laughs) So the last question, um, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action right now, maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take, what would it be? Um, I think it would be, God, I I already kind of said it, but I'll just reiterate it. And it's like, you know, that you will never, ever get the most beautiful, magical, amazing things about life through conformity. So, um, like figure, like, like really, I think I want to say as hard as that, as hard as it sounds, because a lot of us are bought into conformity to different levels, right? Um, as hard as it sounds, like I think it's so important to like listen to that that voice inside of you that's like telling you this is what makes me happy, this is what doesn't make me happy, and and like really just honor that knowledge as sacred. Mm, that's beautiful. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online, see what you have coming up as far as you mentioned Babe Camp, other things, what's your favorite way to connect, all of that good stuff? 
Yes. So my website is virgitovar.com, V-I-R-G-I-E-T-O-V-A-R.com. Um, that's where I have all of my schedule stuff. You can um, register for Babe Camp and there's like a, an overview of my work there. Um, I am very active on Instagram primarily and that my handle is at virgitovar. Um, and those are my, those are my favorite ways to connect. Awesome. Well, I will put links to that and everything else that we talked about in the show notes. Virgie, this was so much fun. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. So if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every single month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better behind the scenes in our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 